Welcome back everyone to episode four of series two of LSHTM Viral. My name is Carl Byrne and today I'm joined with my co-host. Amy Thomas and it's nice to be back on the podcast. Hello everybody. So Amy, how are you doing today? I'm I'm all right today. Feeling a little bit tense with the election, but um, yeah, I'm I'm not I'm not too bad. How are you doing, Carl? I, I would agree. I'm I'm feeling a little bit tense about uh, what's going on in America, but uh, hopefully by the next podcast we record, we'll have a definitive answer about what's going on. That would be good. I think the uncertainty is what <laughs> uh, is the worst part about this. Um, so hopefully, yeah, by the next next podcast, we will know in which direction we're headed. Yeah, to quote John Cleese, it's not the despair. I can take the despair. It's the hope I can't stand. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I think I agree with John there. I think I definitely agree with him there. Yeah, and I wonder if, you know, it's it's suitable to mention the recent news about uh, America officially withdrawing from the Paris Agreement on Wednesday, yesterday. Uh, Sad, quite sad official news. Yeah, and I think a lot will depend on the results of the American presidential election, if that stands or if in, what, four months' time that that gets reversed. Uh, I think it all comes down to who wins. Yeah, I mean, apparently Biden has pledged to re-enter the Paris Agreement. So, you know, again, there's some hope there, but it's it's very up in the air at the moment. And that ties in quite well with um, today's podcast. So, Today I interviewed Professor Martin Antonio, who's a professor of molecular microbiology and global health uh, and is based at the MRC unit in the Gambia. And I also interviewed uh, Calista Chan, who's a research PhD student who's looking at how you can grow rice without growing uh, mosquitoes at the same time. Uh, And we talked about environmental changes, so linked to climate change, but also in other ways that the environment can be changed mostly by uh, what humans do, but be that um, cultivating land or using fossil fuels. So um, it definitely ties in tightly with uh, the Americans leaving the Paris Accord. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, that you spoke to sort of Callista about this rice, because I, I don't know that much about this, and it sounds like a very interesting area. So what's what's the general sort of take like takeaway? One of the really interesting things she said, and, and you'll hear this in a few minutes' time, but... Um, Whenever humans started to cultivate rice, they basically became large, stable bags of blood who, who sort of left their hunter-gatherer uh, lifestyle behind. So mosquitoes then evolved to use this uh, ready food source. That's uh, a way in which mosquitoes have evolved to feed off people, which the malaria vi- uh, parasite has also evolved then to live with the mosquitoes and the people so it's all this big interconnected web so because of our ability to grow rice and cultivate rice and what become become healthier so that we can we can walk around as more stable bags of blood is is that what you mean more um stationary bags of blood so because whenever you sort of go from a hunter gatherer lifestyle to um a more farming cultivated lifestyle you stay in the one place oh right so this links with rice um and rice in particular with mosquitoes because there's a lot of water involved with rice so it gives a lot of standing bodies of water for the mosquitoes to grow in right or to breed in that's really interesting so it's more about the the actual like movement of of people and actually having a stability of you know uh, mosquitoes being able to attack yeah yeah and and she also told a really interesting story which i won't spoil but um about how different types of cultivation in mexico have led to a change in where disease spreads interesting oh well i can't wait to hear it Sounds quite fascinating. 
Yeah, so that's one side of what we talked about, which is vector-borne, mosquito-borne or insect-transmitted diseases. But then whenever I was talking to, to Martin, he uh, talked a lot more about bacterial meningitis, which doesn't have an insect vector. It doesn't have uh, insects that spread it. It's uh, caused by bacteria that is in people most of the time, so a lot of people have it just in the back of their throat. But there seems to be a link between environmental change and an increase in cases of meningitis. Wow. That's something I've never heard before, and it's it's quite it's quite interesting how obviously these environmental and climate links relate to diseases that are completely different from each other. So it's kind of across across a huge variety of diseases, whether that's in animals or just within humans or bacteria. So that's that's really interesting that bacterial meningitis is actually potentially linked to the environment. There it makes you think how many other diseases that we don't know how they're being affected by the climate or by our activity and there's probably lots of research going on in, in those areas. Yeah, yeah, and, and Martin and Callista both touched on some of the research that's trying to uh, reduce these diseases and also mentioned that it, it's not all in a negative direction. There are actually environmental change can reduce diseases in some areas as well. So this is a really quite complex area that I had no idea about beforehand. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point about reducing diseases. I was thinking about this the other day whilst writing a piece on you know how how our environmental impacts are affecting infectious diseases because usually the narrative is you know we're, we're trying to identify the problems and things that we should be worried about and concerned about so that we can address those but i was suddenly thinking are there any diseases that have are helped by this environment that we've created and if so we don't tend to talk about those so much but maybe it's quite useful to to think about that just you know from from an interesting perspective yeah and- i have to look into it there's still a lot of research that needs to be done in this area. So I think uh, at this point, maybe we should go over and, and listen to hear what uh, Callista and Martin have to say. Yeah, on we go. Can't wait. We're going to be having a look at how environmental change can affect the spread of infectious disease. And that's something that most people may not think of as, as an immediate effect of climate change. But I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how climate can affect the spread of infectious diseases. I think ultimately every environmental change is man-made, if you think about it. And whatever changes we make affects all the organisms within it. So if you talk about environmental change, I think most people will think urbanization, deforestation, and also the intensification of agricultural crops like rice, sugarcane, palm oil. And so all these landscape changes have a really strong tendency to reduce biodiversity of all kinds. And it's not just of animals and birds, but it's also of insects and pathogens. Most of them are driven out, but then there are exceptions. If you think about in urbanization, there's creatures like pigeons, rats, and cockroaches that thrive really well. And in the UK, there's also foxes. And they thrive because of the availability of food. So this applies to vectors and pathogens as well. And so in the case of mosquito vectors, there's this one called Aedes aegypti, which is also called the yellow fever mosquito. And they're very well adapted to live and breed in very small containers. And so I remember growing up when I was living in Hong Kong, I would see all these posters from the government telling us to empty out our flower pots because we want to reduce the amount of vector breeding sites available. So that's one of the mechanisms that environmental change can result in the spread of infectious disease by the creation of breeding sites. But there's also other things like encroachment into the pathogen habitat by working in the forest edges. 
So a lot of individuals have to go into the forest for economic activities like mining and hunting. And this results in bringing back some diseases into the humans from the animals. Environmental change will have a really strong impact in infectious disease in particular and some of the work that we, we've been doing like Gambia. Uh, and what, what I really want to focus on, given that I'm based in West Africa, is the meningitis epidemics that we usually experience in what we call the African meningitis belt. So when, when you look at the map of Africa from the west of Senegal all the way to east of Sudan and, and part of Kenya, we, we tend to get almost annually meningitis outbreaks, which occurs uh, really in the, in the hot dry season. And is this something that has just recently emerged in the last 20 years, or is this something that's going back throughout history? It definitely has been going on for a very, very long time. I think with all types of animals, not just humans. And what's really interesting, actually, is that people think that malaria vectors became adapted to biting humans in Africa because of the agricultural revolution. When humans changed from hunting and gathering to living in communal settlements next to their farms, it actually led to higher numbers and densities of humans in one area, as well as small water collections close to these settlements. And so farmers actually transformed themselves into really large and stable sources of blood in the midst of a lot of mosquito breeding sites. So it made sense for mosquitoes to have this strong selective advantage to become adapted to breed close to human habitations and feed on human blood. So this has been happening for a very long time and that's why people think malaria is a very ancient disease. And as opposed to bacterial meningitis, we consider that to be relatively a new disease. And the first recorded outbreak of meningitis was actually recorded in Geneva in 1805. In terms of um, West Africa, the first known epidemic of meningitis actually occurred in 1905. So this was an outbreak of 32 cases of meningitis in northern Nigeria at the time. And around about 1905, northern Nigeria has just become a colony of Britain like two years prior. So uh, there were a little bit of on settlement at, at, at that time. And it, it, it has been reported that, and then the outbreak from the, the Nigeria sort of spread to Northern Ghana as well. So it sort of spread East. In effect, bacterial meningitis is, is fairly new disease compared to malaria. So what I'm getting from this is that there's been sort of a long history of humans affecting the environment and causing a spread of disease. But as time's gone on, there's been an increase in these different diseases that are emerging. Calista, I know you're, you mentioned your research is around rice cultivation and malaria, so it's kind of very much on topic here where you're trying to breed rice, but not the mosquitoes at the same time. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Like many issues in planetary health, it's, this is a bit of a complicated situation just because there are a few players involved. And here, the issue that we're tackling, there is a Ministry of Health in Africa which is planning to eliminate malaria on the one hand. And then on the other hand, there's ministries of agriculture wanting to expand rice production to help with food security and self-sufficiency in the continent. But then rice fields, because they're continuously flooded, are really ideal breeding sites for malaria vectors. And so 
this has been very well established and many studies have shown that villagers in rice growing areas compared to neighboring non-rice growing areas get a lot more mosquito bites. For example, there is a study in Tanzania showing that people living in dry savanna areas only get around 25 bites every night, which is a lot. Even if we get one or two, we get a bit annoyed, but those living next to flooded rice, they could get around 250 a night. But obviously we can't just tell people to stop growing rice. So we thought that we should find more sustainable ways to integrate both health and the agricultural sectors to work on this problem. And so we're thinking of ways to grow rice without growing mosquitoes. And one such method that we're really interested in is called alternate wetting and drying irrigation, which is a water management technology. And it was originally developed by International Rice Research Institute in Southeast Asia as a strategy for climate change mitigation and adaptation, since rice fields are actually major users of water resources and they're actually a very important producer of methane emissions, around 11%. And so alternate wetting and drying irrigation lets the field dry out rather than the traditional continuous flooding. And so it lets the water table sink below until 15 centimeters before the field is reflooded. And so we were wondering whether this timing would fit the mosquito larvae too, since they rely on water to survive. And if it does work, it would be really great if we could have this win-win-win-win scenario where rice yield is maintained, water consumption is reduced, greenhouse gas emissions are reduced as well, and malaria vector production is reduced. So it's a very much a planetary health problem we're facing. And has this been looked into before? You, you've mentioned that it's been looked at as a way of sort of saving water, but has there been any research before your work uh, looking at reduction of mosquitoes? Yeah, mosquito researchers have always been interested in reducing mosquitoes produced in rice fields. So they've been looking at other methods like intermittent irrigation or putting fish in the rice. And all of these methods have worked. It's just that because it's mosquito researchers trying not to grow mosquitoes, it's been effective. But when you tell rice researchers to, they probably wouldn't listen to us medical entomologists on how to grow rice. So it's better to incorporate mosquito monitoring into regular rice research so that we can figure out how to grow rice without growing mosquitoes together. It's sort of bringing together the two different disciplines. Um, yeah. I'm sure that, that everyone's so, together. Yeah, so in the end, we would really want rice researchers to actually account for mosquito numbers in their research. So normally they would account for rice yield, weed production, labor productivity, the role of gender. So we would just really want them to include mosquito vector number as another factor. With malaria transmission increase, I can see where that uh, can be affected by the environment because what's happening is you're, you're busy giving more area for mosquitoes to grow, which carry the malaria protozoa. But for diseases, Martin, like meningitis, which don't have a vector, how is the environmental changes affecting that? Yeah, so um, this is really a very important question. As I mentioned, in, in Africa and most other places, actually, we, we do experience what we call seasonality. So in West Africa, there are two main seasons. We have the dry season and then the wet season. And so we know that these two seasons are influenced by environmental change. 
And we also know that we tend to get outbreaks of meningitis during the dry season. So obviously outbreaks of meningitis is influenced by the season. And in addition, the age groups in which the outbreak occurs is usually uh, children between the, the ages of five and 21. So that's one aspect that we think is really important. The, the, the other aspect is that we know that exposure of indoor air pollution, for example, exposure to volatile compounds, particular matters, and really influence what, what goes on within the nose and the throat. And I was going to say, one of the conundrums that we face is that uh, as humans, we, we do carry the pathogens that causes uh, meningitis. So these pathogens are carried at the back of our throat in healthy uh, individuals, but somehow they break into the uh, blood barrier and then they begin to uh, system causing invasive disease and then, and, and then get into the brain and then causes meningitis. However, if you do microbiological studies, which I've done in my lab, looking at those pathogens from current individuals, you rarely find them. So they are, they are quite rare. However, these pathogens are common in invasive diseases. So in, in the Gambia, a lot of my research and some of my colleagues are really focusing in understanding how outbreaks of cares and how this is also influenced by environmental change. So the and, factors that govern the meningitis seem to be dry season, but also the pollution can increase the numbers as well. Is that right? Yes, exactly. But we don't really understand much about how dry season influences us. And, and of course, how uh, environmental change like air pollution could affect us. We, we do know that. So part of the studies that we were doing is really to measure the air pollution and dust particles that individuals within households in the Gambia are exposed to. And to do this, we've recruited children between the ages of five and, and 15. And part of the group, we've given them environmental monitoring system. So it's a system that they wear around their waist and they can go about their normal duties. And some of the work that we are doing, as it's referred to as citizen science. So it's ongoing research. And we think that it may be able to answer some of the questions with regard to exposure of environmental assaults in the future. And Martin, I know that you're involved with the diarrhea group in Africa as well. Can exactly. things like um, cholera be affected by environmental change? Indeed, <laughs> it, it can be affected. And we know that outbreak of cholera, for example, occurs in the wet season when, when, when you have a lot of water. And, and, and again, all, all these issues can be influenced by environmental change. Uh, a few years ago, we conducted a diarrhea studies in, in children where we look at transmission of the enteric pathogens within house flies. So as you know, um, uh, house flies, again, these are flies that are, again, influenced by, by uh, human activities, and they tend to grow during the wet season as well. At the time, we didn't quite understand how the transmission occurs, whether it occurs through stagnant water or through flies. So we spent a lot of time catching flies within the household in which individuals were recruited. And then we, we matched them up. And then we did a molecular biology on them. And what we did discovered is that the, the pathogens that we, we found uh, in the flies were similar to what was causing the diarrhea as well. And of course, 
that has a strong implication about the environmental influence. So indeed, environmental change is absolutely important in our setting and it affects diarrhea diseases as well. So both of you have been talking Sorry. about diseases that are affecting areas of Africa. Do you see climate change also having an effect on disease spread in other places around the world? I think a key fear for many is that tropical vector-borne diseases like malaria would eventually expand into temperate zones because of climate change. And while it has happened before, for example, with the chikungunya outbreak in Italy, I think it's very difficult to actually see a really strong association between climate change and the probability of some of these vector-borne disease events because there's a lot of other plausible explanations that are climate independent, like increased travel, increased globalization and trade, and both of them generally increase introduction probabilities. So local changes actually could confound global changes. And it is true that the vectors are sensitive to changes in weather and climate, but just because temperatures rainfall and humidity can be suitable for the parasite and the vector. It doesn't mean that there are breeding sites available for the mosquitoes. And also the social, economic, medical, and the public health conditions of an area also plays a really large role. So whilst we should really continue monitoring the situation just to be aware of how bad it can get, sometimes I think there can be a misunderstanding with this. However, there can be extreme weather that can result in things like excessive rainfall and flooding. And that would basically create really good conditions for vector-borne diseases to thrive and cause outbreaks. I think it's interesting what you say that even if climate change um, affects a region um, to to make it suitable for a disease, that that disease may not make it there or that it's human's fault because they they bring it in through uh, freight or air travel. um, So it's it's not like there's, a, there's no simple solution here. It's all one big interconnected web. Yeah, exactly. And what's really important is that with these spillover events, so spilling over diseases from animal transmission cycles to human transmission cycles, like COVID, for example, they're always going to occur. And it is really good to study the likelihood of these events, like where they would occur and how often. But we also really need to focus on the ability of us humans to deal with this issue. It's a problem of resilience within the human population to reduce spread. So I think a lot of us have come across this term because of COVID, but there's the basic reproduction number. So the number of cases that are generated by one case in a susceptible population. We need to keep this reproduction number under one in the human population to allow us to be resilient. And we do this by de-risking our environment and our surroundings. So this can be from better waste water management to, like I said, emptying flower pots, dishes in the water of our backyards. Incidentally, I was going to mention that because you mentioned COVID, uh, incidentally, the, the UK government was supposed to be hosting a conference on climate change in, in Glasgow in November this year. The COP23. Exactly, yes. It's been postponed. And of course, the London squad, you know, we are involved in the academic aspects of, of the climate change conference, but this is going to involve uh, 
governmental policy and so as well as getting rid of uh, standing water so that mosquitoes can't breed is there anything else we can be doing to reduce the risk of malaria or other vector-borne diseases or diseases that already exist in people is there is there things that we can do to mitigate the environmental impact I think some really interesting research that has occurred at the school and with researchers from the Center of Climate Change and Planetary Health include a colleague of mine, Kim Farnacci. She was she's been working on deforestation on the effects of zoonotic malaria in Borneo, and she's been using really fancy technology like drone imagery and satellite-based remote sensing data, machine learning approaches to look for associations between environmental changes and infectious disease transmission. And with that, she found that even though mosquito biting rates were higher in the forest, habitat edges were more important because these areas allowed the intensified interactions between pathogens, insects, and people. So advocating this research and translating it to the general population, letting them know that there are certain areas that are of higher risk to people. There's definitely a key way of de-risking our susceptibility to these diseases. There's also another research group that's looking at early warning systems for dengue, and it's conducted by Oliver Brady and Rachel Lowe, and they were able to predict outbreaks up to six months in advance, I think, in Southeast Asian countries. And it just allowed authorities to know where to distribute their resources appropriately. In fact, next week, Amy is going to be interviewing Rachel Lowe, so I'm sure they're going to be covering that topic in a little bit more depth then. Calista, are there things that can be done to reduce the environmental impact on disease? I think um, what's really interesting is that a lot of people might associate environmental change with an increase in diseases, but it can also lead to a decrease in diseases. For example, the deforestation in Thailand and Vietnam, the Mekong subregion, has actually allowed certain vectors to thrive, malaria vectors to thrive, which aren't that efficient. And so they aren't very good at transmitting malaria within the human population since they prefer to bite animals. And so it's actually allowed malaria transmission to to decrease in these areas. But then there's a problem of the fact that the forest is almost completely gone and it's replaced by things like um, rice fields. And then these rice fields create vectors that aren't malaria vectors in this region in Southeast Asia, but they do bring a different risk, which is Japanese encephalitis. This is commonly found in areas where farmers grow both rice and pigs, and then pigs are amplifying hosts for viruses. So it really depends on the environmental change and the disease and the vector and the pathogen. It's an interaction between all of them. That's fascinating. And Martin, that same question to you. Is there things that can be done in the Gambia to reduce the risk of meningitis, or is it something that's still in the research stage? If you go to Aurora, areas in, in Gambia, uh, a lot of the uh, population uh, uses charcoal for generating heat and some of them use wood from the forest as a cooking fuel and of course as you burn wood you can't generate 
uh, small particles that when it's breathing can affect the way the lungs function. And we, we also do know that indoor air pollution can also influence carriage of dangerous uh, bacteria pathogens. So if we can break that cycle, we will be able to, if you like, decrease invasive disease, not certain, or, or outbreaks as well. So indeed, yes, uh, we are researching to really understand how environmental and climate change affects uh, health in our setting. But we, we also know that there are uh, certain things that we, we can do as individuals in order to decrease our, our exposure to uh, infection. Yeah, I think, I think a key way we really need to think is that we need to stop being part of the problem and hold ourselves accountable, but actually become part of the solution. And this will be through technical or policy-related interventions that's backed up by research. Environmental changes also cause human population migration, and that also leads to infectious disease spread because people from um, infected areas could move to uninfected areas, bringing the disease with them. A really good example is the story in Mexico. In, in Mexico, there's this area called Tapachula, and this is really agriculturally rich with a variety of crops, and they import plantation workers from Guatemala where malaria is endemic. And so there's malaria hotspots in areas which are labor heavy, which is cotton areas in coastal plains of Tapachula. And then there's one malaria vector called Anopheles albumanus, which transmits it. But then because they were able to eliminate Mediterranean fruit flies and actually cultivate mangoes, which are much more profitable and doesn't include as much labor. The labor moved from coastal areas to the foothills of Tapachula to start working in coffee plantations. So this actually shifted the malaria hotspots from coastal areas to the foothills. And then in the foothills, it's actually being transmitted by another vector. So that's a really interesting aspect. And that's because infected humans left the coastal area, moved inland, and then were bitten by a different vector, which then transmitted amongst the population there. Yeah, exactly. What I'm getting from, from what we've been talking about is that this is a wildly complicated situation and there's no uh, sort of clear drawn boundaries in any of these things. It's uh, people affect the environment, which affects the vectors, which affects the disease, which affects the people, which affects the environment, which infect, affects the, the disease. And it's, it's, all, it's all linked together. Yeah. It, it is indeed, but I mean, I, I, I think us um, society must start practicing uh, sort of international uh, agreement and now I'm I'm referring back to called COP twenty one. So this was the Paris Agreement on climate change. If I recall, some of the agreement by member states was, was that uh, every country is going to re reduce global warming by two degrees C. And I think a, a lot of countries signed up to to do this as well as the developing countries. Some of the big countries like the US and others uh, have, uh, I think it's really important because when it comes to climate change, 
it does not need a visa to go from one country to, to another country. It's the global issue. And so we really need to encourage a very high level policy makers to really think about the influence of this change in, in our environment. And I'm really pleased that um, David Attenborough and Prince Charles recently have come up with a, a fellowship and that could address some of these problems. So uh, I think as researchers, as we conduct our science, we still have to maintain the, the issue of climate change at a very high level so government can take this uh, really, really seriously. Yeah, I agree with Martin. It's very much a top-down approach when it comes to these issues of environmental change and diseases. Obviously, with this top-down approach, it has to come from government. But how can the researchers influence government to make those changes? I think some of the important things that we do as researchers is that we, we conduct our research, and then we publish our papers, and then we sort of sit back. I think it's about time that any research that is conducted, of course, is data-driven. We will need to engage with the ministries and also the president at the various countries. We really need to explain what our findings are. We can also work with regional bodies. So, for example, in, in Africa, we, we have the African Union. Uh, in, in Europe, you, you have the European Union. And as I, I think we, we have to engage government at a really high level to really understand the research finance in, in order for governments to implement that. So, for I me, mean, I, I think it's no doubt we really, really have to work hard policy makers in this area. I just want to say thanks very much for uh, agreeing to come on the podcast. Uh, it's been a really interesting chat. Thank you. Thank and you thanks so much for, for inviting uh, for, for, for inviting us. Thank right. you. So much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Once again, a big thank you to my guests today, Martin Antonio and Callista Chan. Amy, Naomi and I will be back next week with another episode. And in the meantime, if you'd like to get in touch with comments about previous episodes or questions you'd like to see us answer in future episodes, you can email us at comms at lshtm.ac.uk. That's comms at lshtm.ac.uk. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, leave us a review and share it with your friends, family and colleagues. Until next time, I've been Carl Byrne, and you've been listening to LSHTM Viral.